as, as we were worshiping, uh, and as we were between songs and as, as Becky was, was speaking, the Lord just, He, he dropped a, a passage of Scripture in my, in my mind. And, and most, most of you know, I happen to believe in the prophetic. I, I believe God still speaks. I, I believe God speaks in different ways. I, I believe sometimes He speaks through His Word to us specifically. Uh, and this morning, He just dropped this passage in my mind. So I'm going to share this. Uh, most of us, and, and I don't know who this is for, uh, probably for all of us, I'm sure it's for me, but most of us do our best to hide our weaknesses. We just don't like those, right? I mean, everybody agree? We, we just don't like the places where we don't feel like we, we measure up to whatever it is we feel like we ought to measure up to. I want you to, I want you to listen to what the, the Apostle Paul says. Paul, uh, probably the greatest Christian that's ever lived. Okay, He wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, we're here today because he took the gospel to the Gentiles. So th there's a lot to, th that Paul has that, uh, that we ought to be thankful for. But, but Paul, Scripture tells us in, 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 in 2 Corinthians 12, and by the way, this is not what I'm preaching on, so i gotta, I got five minutes before it's my time to preach. So. <laughs> y'all didn't use all y'all's. Thank you for the time, though, okay? Anyway, the Apostle Paul... He was gung-ho at whatever he went after. When he was a Pharisee, he was the most gung-ho Pharisee. I mean, he just, he lived it, he breathed it, he slept it. I mean, he just, that, that was what he was about. But when Jesus changed his life, all of that passion was, was transformed from following a set of religious laws and rules to following a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he was blessed in a, in, in a, in a lot of ways that, that most of us can only dream about. He also paid a price that none of us want to pay. But in chapter 12, he, he recounts something. He doesn't say it's him, but most everybody that I know and most theologians believe, he, he was caught up in a vision. He saw heaven. He saw what heaven was like. And it was so inexpressible that he didn't have words to write it down and because he saw it God had to put some rains on him if you don't know what a rain is a rain is what you pull back on a horse or where I grew up it was a mule we had a mule and you and you kind of slow them down because I mean when you've seen heaven you've seen all there is I mean I mean you, you, you've got a pretty good glimpse and and scripture tells us that that he had a he was given a thorn in the flesh. Now most people will say, "Well, God gave him that." Now I don't believe God gave him that. Okay, I believe that thorn in the flesh came from Satan, but God used it to kind of rein Paul back. And I love what Paul does. Paul Paul prays, "God, take this away from me. Take this away from me. Take this away from me." And this is what God said. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most of us don't like our weakness. You know what one of Paul's weaknesses, I believe, was? 
I believe he could be an arrogant man if he wanted to. I mean, he's brilliant. And, and you, as you read uh, his letters, you, you can see him tiptoe close to the edge sometimes, and God just pulls him back. It, it's, it's, you, it, it, I mean, if we're just honest, he's, he's a real guy. He puts his pants on the same way we do, one leg at a time. I mean, he's just a real person. But he could have been very arrogant, and yet that was a weakness for him. And he realized it because over and over and over he will say things like, I am, I'm the chief of sinners. And by the way, he didn't say that at the beginning of his relationship with Jesus. He said that near the very end when he had walked with Jesus for years and years and years. I'm the, I'm the worst of the worst. Now that's not false humility. That's a realization of somebody who's gotten closer to God. The closer you get to God, the more clearly you can see yourself. And the clearer you see yourself, you realize who you are. And you realize your daggum weakness. In fact, you're just weak all over. And Paul's, God says to him, my grace is sufficient. In other words, it's enough for whatever weakness you have. Some of you are struggling with your weaknesses. You're, not, you're afraid to, to plug in. You're afraid to take a chance and do something. By the way, it's not a chance. There's no such thing as chance in a world that's ruled by God. Okay, There's no such thing as luck. All right? There's God. And if I will let him take my weaknesses, he will pour his power into us. I love what Paul says after God says this to him. He says, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. He didn't say a weakness. He said weaknesses. I, don't, I can't speak for any of you. That's where I live, weaknesses. Everything that I thought was a strength early in my life has turned out to be a weakness, a liability. And yet... God takes those liabilities and he uses them. He uses them to transform us. He uses us to step into places where in our power we have no ability or hope to change anything and he changes it through us. I, 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 could, I, could, I look out at this body and I, I look at people and I know some of your stories. I know some of the things you're doing now for the Lord Jesus and it just amazes me because what, what could have destroyed you has become a tool for you to change lives. I don't know who I'm talking to this morning. But whatever weakness you have, just put it in Jesus' hands. Just give it to him and let him use it. Because this is what he says. My power is perfected in weakness. My power is matured. It's made complete in your weakness. There used to be a bumper sticker years and years ago uh, when I was a lot younger that uh, God's my co-pilot. That sounds really good. Except God's nobody's co-pilot. God is the pilot. All right? We are the passengers, okay? And, 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 and Paul, realizes, Paul realizes that if I want God's power, then I have to step out in my weaknesses. I learned years and years ago that when God gives me a word, 
just to share it. He gave me one this morning for somebody, and I just, I, I sent it to them. I texted it to them. I used to worry, did I hear God? Did I not hear God? You know what? If I wait till I'm for certain, I will never give anybody a word. So that's what I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning. Whatever your weaknesses are, God wants to join His power to them and accomplish the work that He has for you to do. He's never going to accomplish the work He has to do that He's called you to do in your strengths. You say, well, why not? Because if you can do it in your own strength, you don't need God. God wants weak people. He's given you a weak pastor. All right? Uh, the last thing I ever wanted to do was this. <laughs> okay? And most days, I don't want to do it still. But I'm learning that if I'll just, if I'll just offer myself to him every morning, he'll take care of it. Paul says this, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we just confess to you, we are all weak. We're unable to do what you have called us to do. But God, you have given us the Holy Spirit who empowers us. You, in our weakness, in our utter weakness, you have given us the power of Jesus Christ through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray this would be a year that we step out. Not in fear, but in boldness and in our weaknesses. And Lord, we see your power manifested. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now that I've kind of got you listening, I want to I ask you some questions. And, and I, I wasn't going to do this, but I think I am. And listen, I'm not asking you to answer out loud, so don't, don't, don't get terrified. But I want to ask you, do you, do you have somebody in your family or, or do you know somebody that you, you love that's lost? I mean, if we're honest, probably all of us. If you, don't, if you don't have anybody in your family that's lost, you are a blessed, your family is blessed. But all of us know somebody that's lost. Do you have someone that you love that's lost? Do you, do you, do you have someone that doesn't know, and I'm going I'm to qualify lost, who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? I'm going to ask you a question. I'm, and, 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 and this is not just, you know, this is not to pull your heartstrings. This is just, re I want you to step into the reality of reality. What's going to happen to that person if they die without Jesus Christ. Man, that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough, who's going to tell them? Who's going to pray for them? Who's going to 
fast for them? Who's going to reach out to that one person? I've been a pastor long enough and been in the church long enough that for many people, <clears throat> the answer who's going to tell them was, well, pastor, you are. <laughs> That's not the right answer. <laughs> I'll never forget. I got a call uh, one time from somebody that, that said, pastor, I've got a friend that's over in, I believe it was, uh, it's Brookwood Hospital. I have to go through the names of all the hospital changes and make sure they hadn't changed since I thought about the story. But this, this gentleman, he said, he said, I've got a friend. He's in Brookwood Hospital, and he's, he's, he's dying. And he lost. I said, well, how long have you known him? He said, we work together every day for 30 years. But somebody needs to tell him about Jesus. I said, well, you know what, I'll, I'll go visit him. And I went. But you know the person that God raised up to tell that man about Jesus was that man he worked with for 30 years. <laughs> that would have been the person that, that he would have listened to. I went because I needed to go. He listened to me, but he didn't know me from Adam. He just thought I was doing what I was supposed to do as a pastor. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. That was the one that God had put in that man's life to make sure that he heard about Jesus. And you know what? The, the number one doesn't seem very important to most of us. There's not a lot of value, and there's not a lot of worth, there's not a lot of importance, and uh, not a lot of significance with just one. Uh, we live in a culture where your, your value and your importance and your worth is determined on how many or how much. It, that's true in the church. That's why churches ma major on uh, uh, numbers, because numbers give you significance with your peers. I've never really cared about numbers. It just, I mean, I'm, I, I, maybe I should, but I mean, it's just never, that wasn't the big, that wasn't the deal for me. But numbers are important, but they're not everything. And, and one doesn't seem like a lot. Even our culture tries to squeeze out the idea of one. Our culture wants us all to be alike. To believe the same thing, to act uniform and, and do the same things. It doesn't, it doesn't encourage individualism very much. Uh, for most of us, if we were honest, one holds very little value. I mean, hey, what can one person do? Think about money. What will a dollar buy? Now, I may be a fool, okay? But I don't ever pass a penny up when I see it on the sidewalk. I had a family member that wouldn't carry them. He just tossed them out. I learned early on from a lost man that if you'll take care of your pennies, your dollars will take care of themselves. But most people don't place a lot of importance 
on one. They place importance on many. And what happens is, in doing so, we tend to neglect the one, the obvious one that God puts in front of us. We've been kind of conditioned to think that one of anything won't make us significant, won't make us popular, won't make us rich, won't make us successful. Yet, in the economy of God, one is his priority. I, I wanna, I'm, that, that's what I'm going to talk about today is the priority of one. Because one is the number that God cares about. Now, he cares about every one, but he works one at a time. He cares about the one. He has marshaled all of the, the power of heaven to affect one. If you, if you look at Scripture uh, from the beginning to the end, God has a, an MO. He has a modus operandi of how he, how he operates, and it's one at a time. One at a time. Now, sometimes it's, it's one at a time and it multiplies itself, but it's always one at a time. What we call salvation, and, and, and I want to be very clear on my definitions. If you've, if you've heard me preach and define salvation, you'll, you'll understand this. When we talk about salvation, which has three aspects, it's, it's the healing of, 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 the, of the spirit, redemption. It's, it's the, the, the deliverance of, of the soul. It's, it, it's the, the physical healing of the body. It's all about one. Every one has to come to the place of salvation. Now, sometimes they come in groups, but they still come individually. In other words, what one person receives doesn't guarantee that everybody in the house receives it. They have to come on their own. They have to come one at a time. Jesus came to save the one. The one that was here, the one that was there, the one in the gutter, the one that lives in the penthouse, the, the one on drugs, the, the one that's on the dean's list, the one living in poverty, the one that's got plenty. Young ones, the old one. Listen, he, he came to save the one that's driving a Mercedes or the one that's walking barefoot through the desert or on a jungle path. Uh, he, he came to save the one that, that's dressed in Versace and carrying uh, a Louis Vuitton bag or the one that's wearing that little black, jet black Muslim burqa. He came to save that one too. He came to save the gay one, believe it or not. Just as much as he came to save the straight one. Came to save Republicans. Came to save Democrats. Came to save independents. But he came to save the one. He came to save male and female alike. The one, regardless of the description that we lump on them, is priority one to God. And Jesus, when he appears, he demonstrates this priority of the one over and over and over again throughout the gospel. Jesus is constantly interacting with one. Even when he's in a crowd, you'll see him interact with one. There's the, the, the lady that, that's bent over and that can't straighten up. One person, one lady. The, the, the lady that grabs and touches his, his prayer shawl from behind and touches the hem of his garment. It's one. The, the, the blind man. The, the man whose son was, was demonized. It's always one. Nowhere is this priority that Jesus has expressed more clearly than in 
Luke chapter 15. And we're going to camp out today in, in Luke chapter 15. If you're familiar with Luke 15, Luke 15 is, is about three stories. It's the lost sheep, the lost coin. And most people would say the lost son. If you read it very closely, it's the lost sons. There's two of them. You say, yeah, but one of them's not lost. Yeah, he's lost. He's in the father's house, but he's lost because he doesn't know the father. And so he, he tells this story, and, and, and this story has one meaning. It's not three different stories to communicate a myriad of meanings. It has one meaning. Jesus tells this story, these three stories. He has a captive audience for a few moments, and he brings them from a place that they all would agree and think about to a place where they're trapped and they can't get out. And he communicates a message, and that is that God cares about one. And, and we, we, see, we see very often, uh, the, the, many people would call these parables, and, and I think that's true, but a parable is, is just a story. Jesus was a master storyteller. He would tell these parables, these stories, and, and what's happened 2,000 years after the stories were told is that we have taken the descriptive elements that Jesus used to put flesh on the story with and we've given them all kinds of spiritual meanings. And, and, and we get lost in the details and when we get to the end of the story, we don't even know why Jesus told it. Jesus told stories to communicate one message. A parable has one specific message that the, the, the person that tells it is trying to, be communi- is trying to communicate. So, so we have to be very careful. and We can't allow the descriptive elements to derail us or kind of deafen us to the meaning of what Jesus is trying to communicate. Now I want you to look at, at verse 1 of chapter 15. Now, I'm, gonna get, I'm never going to find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So give me a second to, to go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it opens this way. And if you have a a red letter Bible, you're going to see that uh, basically after chapter 15, I mean, verse 1 and 2, the rest of the the words are in red. And so what happens is Luke is is setting up what Jesus is about to say. And he says, uh, he says this, it opens like this. Now all the tax gatherers, all the tax collectors that were Jewish, that worked for Rome, and who collected a lot more money than they were supposed to. That's, that's, that's a part of it. The tax collectors and the sinners. And when, when we read that, I don't, I don't know what goes through your mind, but what is meant there is all those who are not, who are not religious or who were non-practicing Jews. That's, that's who Jesus is talking to. So he's talking to the tax collectors. He's talking to the, the non-practicing Jews. They were coming near him to listen to him. And both Pharisees and scribes begin to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus tells us three parables. He's about to tell us three parables in Luke 15. And he's speaking to an audience that's made up of two specific groups. I mean, it's like divided down the middle, okay? It's like our government right now. Republicans over here, Democrats over here. 
They don't like each other. They don't want to have anything to do with each other. That's what this crowd is like. One crowd is made up with, with, with uh, non-religious people. They were the tax collectors. They were the, the people that, that didn't practice every day. And one of the reasons they were non-practicing is, is because they didn't feel like they could measure up to this other group's expectations. They were called in Hebrew the Ham-Aretz, the people of the land. They were just regular folks. Regular folks. But they couldn't measure up. They couldn't do what they were supposed to do every day with their livestock and ever be clean enough to get into the temple. So you know what they did? What most people in our culture have done. They tossed it over their head and gave up on religion, on the practice of it. Can't do it, so why try? Too many rules, too many regulations. The other group, the Pharisees, the scribes, these are, these are the religious elite. These are the guys who eat, sleep, and breathe it. This is, these are the guys that make their living from it. These are the guys who copy scripture. These are the guys who, who, who handle all of the stuff uh, that, that, that comes up. And so you've got two specific audiences, and yet Jesus is about to tell three stories that apply to both of them. The thing this group has in common is, is they're all lost. L-O-S-T, in the high grass. They can't find God. You say, well, what about the Pharisees and, and, and the scribes? Well, before we make too many judgments here, if we lived in this day, I hate to say this, we would probably be the Pharisees and the scribes. We would be the religious ones. So we would be the conservatives. So just take it. He's got two audiences. Really, he's got one. There are different responses that are going to take place to Jesus. There's going to be the response of the, the, the non-religious. There's going to be the response of the religious. And there's going to be Jesus' response. The non-religious group had no issue with Jesus. I mean, that's what it says. They were coming near to listen to him. You don't listen to, you don't come to see somebody and listen to them if you have issues with them, right? I don't. Okay, I don't buy a ticket to go see something I don't want to see or to listen to somebody I don't want to hear talk. But they were coming to, to listen to They had no issue with you. They listened to him. And you'll hear this phrase over and over and over throughout the New Testament. They listened to him gladly. There was something about Jesus that, that, that opened their hearts up. And they were open to what he was teaching. And they were responding. Now, the religious group here, they responded totally different. And we see that in verse 2. And both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, the man receives sinners and eats with them. The religious, it was gladly. The religious were grumbling. I got to choose my words carefully right here. <laughs> they were griping and complaining, moaning and groaning. Because they had two issues with Jesus. And if we're not careful, we miss that. This man receives sinners... That's one of them. And he eats with them. That's the second one. 
there's a lot of meaning there that very often we miss. When, when, when Luke says he receives sinners, he says he's meaning Jesus welcomes them with acceptance without judgment. He doesn't judge them, he accepts them. He's come to get them, and they're coming to him. So what would he do? He would welcome them. He wouldn't condemn them. He wouldn't beat them over the head with the Bible. He wouldn't tell them how worthless they are and how sorry they are. No, he would welcome them. And so that's what Jesus does. He accepts them without judgment. He doesn't reject them. But he also goes a step farther. When we read he eats with them, we just think he sits down, he sits down and has a biscuit with them. Or, you know, a, a cup of coffee and a, and a, a burrito or whatever. That, that eats with them implies something that we're, we don't think about very often. He, he, he fellowships. That's what the idea is. When you sat down in the Middle East and ate with someone, you communed with them. It, it was a bigger deal than it is in our culture. It, it, it meant that you were entering into a relationship with them. And so Jesus has intimate communion with them, which results then in in a genuine relationship. And the Pharisees didn't like it. He has relationships. He has friendships with people that are worthless. This couldn't be the Messiah. He wouldn't like them. He'd only like us. Well, look at what we know. Look at how we dress. Look at how we keep all these rules. That's, that's the idea. In the, in the minds of the Pharisees, these people were not, they weren't just lost, they were beyond redemption. Okay? They, they were the worst of the worst. These, these religious people would not have walked across the street to help them. You said, Nelson, how do you know that? Listen to the stories Jesus tells. The, the man that w- fell among thieves, and, and who walked by him? The Levite, the priest. Who stopped to help him? The Samaritan. On and on and on it goes. Th- these people, as far as the scribes and the Pharisees go, were the scum of the earth. They didn't have any value, so why dear, are you wasting your time on them? Now, the third response is the response Jesus has. And Jesus is walking out his response. Jesus only had one mission when it comes to this issue. Luke tells us in Luke 19.10, he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, he's got two audiences. Which audience is he reaching for? Both of them. Because they're both lost. You say, but yeah, but, but he, ought to, he ought to do this and he, he ought to let them to, to do whatever and he ought to go after the people that are willing to listen to him. Listen, Jesus came and died for people that who don't listen to him, who don't believe like I believe, who don't think like I think, whose politics are completely different than my politics. Jesus died for them. They are the ones that he came for. He also came for people just like me. Who, by the way, don't think right either. My politics are not correct. Always. And I hate to tell you, yours are not either. All right? I'm just just saying. So Jesus comes looking for the lost one. And the lost one has infinite value to him. 
That group of scribes and Pharisees, he loved them just as much as that group of tax collectors and sinners. He's left the throne of heaven and he's left to become flesh to search out and to save, to make secure the lost one. And then he begins to tell these stories. And don't panic because we're not going to get into detail of the stories because the details, all the details are just window dressing to communicate one message. And that is Jesus puts priority on one. But in each of these stories, something of great value to the owner is lost. The, the, the shepherd who has a hundred sheep, he loses one of them. One is lost, 99 secure. And yet he leaves the 99 to hunt for the one. The woman that has 10 silver coins, one's lost and nine are secure. But she lights a light and begins to sweep the house looking frantically for the, the one coin that she's lost. And by the way, I'll tell you in a minute why. It was worth more than a penny, all right? And then there's the father who has two sons. One son is lost out in the world somewhere, and the other son is lost around the house somewhere. I didn't mean necessarily in the house, but around the house. And in each story, the value of the lost one is either seen in the actions or Uh, of how the man searches or how the person searches, or it's literally given to us. Jesus, in in, in the second story, the first story, I want to start with it. In in Luke 15, 4, Jesus asks a question. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture? Open pasture. That literally means in the wilderness. He's got a hundred sheep, 99 of them are out in the wilderness. He doesn't know where the little lost lamb is. He doesn't know where it's at. How many of them would go after one which is lost until he finds it? Now, none of us are shepherds. Am I correct? A few of us have owned some livestock. Okay, if I had a hundred cattle, and I had one that's missing, and I was in a place in the wilderness where it was dangerous, I wouldn't leave my 99 to go find one. Okay, which is, which is more valuable? The 99 or the one? Well, common sense says the 99. But God puts a priority on one. See, when he tells this story, everybody in the crowd are going, hmm, I've never heard a story like this. None of us would leave our sheep to go look for one lamb. That's a waste of time. That puts everything that we own in danger. So a shepherd would not have lost 99 sheep, and he wouldn't have left them in in open pasture unguarded. It would have been better to lose one than lose all of them. Yet the shepherd Jesus describes is not like them. He's different. And, and so what happens is he gives us a, a, a glimpse into a value system that's different from ours. Now he proceeds, though, with the next story. He, he talks about the lady who, who's lost uh, a, a coin. 
And, and in verse 15, I mean, chapter 15, verse 8, it says, She lights a lamp and sweeps the house and searches carefully until she finds it. Now, the silver coin that she searches for in today's market, worth about $1,200. That's not a penny there. <laughs> that one's worth a whole lot more. You can buy a lot of sheep for $1,200. But what happens is she, 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 gets, she gets up, she lights the... And, you know, I just have this picture. She's in bed. She's counting her, her coins because this is her security. This is, what, this is important to her. And all of a sudden, she's just got nine. Well, she puts them in the bag... And she gets up, she turns the light on, and she starts sweeping. She, she, she just every corner, under everything. She's getting everything out because it's valuable to her. Now, the numbers and the percentages change as Jesus tell these, tells these stories. You got one out of a hundred. I'm not very good in math, but I think that's one percent, right? Okay. So he's lost 1% of his herd. But he's going to look for it. The second story, it's one coin out of 10. It's 10%. Now everybody's on the edge of their, their seats. They're listening to this story. They're not grumbling and griping anymore. They're, they're kind of, he's got them. Then he tells a third story. And the third story is about a son. And if we're not careful, we will look at it as one son out of two, 50%. But that's not the reality. The reality of it is there's 100% of the sons that are lost. And what happens is Jesus draws them in before they know it, and they're trapped because now he's not talking about inanimate objects. He's not talking about animals. Now I know, I know people put a lot of value on their pets and their animals. I, I love my, my dogs, okay? But they ain't people. Alright? And, and I'm going to say this whether you don't like it or not. The value of a human life is more valuable than an animal life, okay? Now I love my dogs. But if push comes to shove, my dog is going to have to fend for himself if it comes down to to a human life. Now we don't like that in our culture, but that's reality. And so all of a sudden he's not talking about an animal. He's not talking about an inanimate object. He's talking about living souls that are created in the image and the likeness of God. And, and, and Luke 15, 11 and 12 tells us this, and a man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate that falls to me. Now, if we're not careful, we, may, we will miss the most, important, the most important sentence in the whole story. It's the next one. So he divided his wealth between them. Not between him and the son that asked for it, but between both sons. Okay? And if we're not careful and we don't understand the meaning of the words there... It won't mean anything. That word wealth there is the word in Greek that's bios. You ever heard of biology? The study of life? He, he divides his life up with them. 
not just his wealth. He gives them who he is, which included everything that he had. He gives it to the younger son. He gives it to the older son. And so he's stressing Jesus is the value of a human soul to God. He's stressing that, that God, that, 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 that this father is different. He's not like all the other fathers. And he's, he's placing an infinite value on the soul based on the value of what it costs to redeem it. In other words, th- this, this father is willing to give up everything for his two sons. Which is a picture of who? It's God. It's God. And what he's saying there is, is, is the cost of, of, of what, G, what God the Father is giving up. They don't realize it, but he is, he's giving up his son. He's giving up the life of his son. So the value of everyone that was there and everyone that has followed is priceless because there is no price you can put on the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is Jesus now has masterfully drawn these two audiences into a place they can't escape. And he begins to tell this story. Both audiences, listen, they understood the value of a sheep. They understood, they may not have one, but they understood the value of the particular coin he was talking about. But you know what? They couldn't relate some of them couldn't personally to what a lost sheep or what a, what a, a, a lost coin might feel like. They, they, it, they, because that's just not possible. They're not in that place. But he's now transported these two audiences into the story. In fact, his two audiences and he represent the three main characters in this story. The sinners, the tax collectors. Of course, they're the prodigal son, Right? I'm going to help you out. Okay? The son that stays home and, and busies himself around the father's house, that's the, that's the Pharisees and the scribes. And the father of this story is God himself. Each of the audience groups is, is portrayed as one of the father's sons. Both of the sons have been, been given everything the father had. He shared his life with them. And both of them have missed the value of what has been available to them. You must say, well, yeah, but the prodigal son, he went out and wasted his. Well, the other son lived in the father's house, and he never accessed anything. So he wasted his life. At least the prodigal got some bang for his buck for a while. You say, well, Nelson, that's not very spiritual. No, but that's reality. One of them was going through the motions. The other one was living the high life till it was gone, till he ran out of credit. Yet both of them are lost as lost can be, even though one of them lives in the father's house. The tax collectors and the sinners, they could relate to verse 13 through 24. They knew who Jesus was talking about. And the Pharisees and, and, the, and the scribes, they're over there like this. Yeah, yeah, you get them, Jesus. Get them, Jesus. I mean, I, I just put yourself in this story. This is what we do. Man, he's eating their lunch now. He didn't love them nearly as much as he acted like. 
It's obvious who Jesus is talking about. But in this part of the story, here's something that takes place that doesn't take place in the latter part of the story. This son recognized his condition. He repents. He turns the direction he's going and he returns. And he returns without any demands. He just returns. And the father, whom we see a picture of, he sees him from a distance. You say, well, how did he do that? Because every day he went to a place where he could watch. He was looking for his son. He was searching for his son. And he sees, on this day, he sees his son staggering back. And what he does would have blown the minds of this culture. He takes his robe and he tucks it up in his belt and he takes off running. You say, what's the big deal? Men of this stature did not run. They walked. Everybody else ran, but they didn't. Not only that, is is that in their culture, it wasn't kosher to show your legs. That was shameful. And yet this father says, to heck with culture, to heck with the rules, it's my boy. And he runs to meet him. He he doesn't just just run to meet him, he grabs him, he embraces him. And, And we read this and we go, well, he gave him a peck on the cheek. Now the Bible says he kissed him all over. He locked his arms down to his side and he began to slobber on the boy. Any of y'all have an aunt when you were growing up that you ever got close to her? She'd grab you by the cheek and she wouldn't let go and you just about smother in her perfume and then good gracious, she'd start kissing on you and when you got away from her, you had red lipstick all over yourself. Any of y'all have an aunt like that? (laughs) That's the picture. This father is just, I mean, he's beside himself. And what happens about at this moment is not about this son. Now, we've, we've made it. I mean, he's, he's eating pig slop, and, and this was the worst thing that could happen to a Jew. I, I don't think that goes through the father's mind. Because it's not about the son. It's not about what the son had done. It's not about the depths of the sin that the son had committed. It's about the love and the grace and the forgiveness of the father for the son. Listen to what he says. For the son, this son of mine was dead. Not just lost in some country that I know where he was at. He was dead. Dead. And has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. That's Luke 15, 24. Jesus is seeking those who recognize themselves in the story and identify with the younger son, the ones who had left the father. But it's interesting. If the story had stopped here, 50% of his crowd would have missed the story. They would have gone home and Jesus wore them out today. I told you they were worthless. They're scum of the earth. And Jesus just verified my position. We must be right. But they weren't right. They were wrong. Jesus didn't, rec- they didn't recognize themselves. That part of the audience, didn't, they didn't recognize themselves in the younger son. You know why? Because they were arrogant 
and they were proud and they had a bad case of religious superiority. They thought they were better than anybody else. I'm going to take a time out here and step over here and then I'll step back to the sermon. And if we're not careful, listen to me, if we're not careful, we will do the very same thing when it comes to the issues we have in our country. We will write it on Facebook. We will pray it out loud in crowds. Listen, Democrats and Republicans need Jesus. And neither group needs Jesus more than the other. And we are supposed to be the ones that are the ones that walk the line between that, sharing with both. Listen, I disagree with this group's (coughs) politics, but I don't like this group's politics either. Okay, I'm not. There are times when I hear things I cringe. I don't care how good the economy is. Both sides need Jesus, and we need to be the force in between. I'm going to say this, and I believe I'm right about this. And you may disagree with me. The president met with a religious group in South Florida this past weekend. And the news came that the military had assassinated or killed uh, this religious, I mean, this uh, general in, in Iraq. And the crowd cheered. The crowd cheered. I remember when uh, Saddam Hussein was found, or not Saddam Hussein, but when Osama bin Laden was killed. The nation went, wow, we had a party. I struggle with that, okay? Now, I'm not, that's just me. They brought that on themselves, okay? Judgment came. But I don't cheer when somebody gets judgment. I don't cheer when somebody goes to the electric chair, Okay? Because that's another soul that may or may not have met Jesus. And we need to realize that, folks. That soul is precious to God. You say, yeah, but he did so and so and he he may have done so and so. But Jesus Christ died on the cross for him just as much as he did for me. Now, I'm going to step back into my sermon and that's... Okay. I'm just saying. Be careful what you write. Lost people read it. It might sound really good. Be careful what you say. Lost people read it. They hear it. And so what happens is in this story is they don't recognize that Jesus is talking to them just as much as he's talking to to them. Because the one Jesus talks about in the latter part of the story lives with the Father, but does not know the Father. Doesn't know his heart. Doesn't know what's important to him. Listen, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they had memorized the... And when I say memorized, I mean they could quote you the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. They, they knew it inside and out, forwards and backwards. They just didn't know the lawgiver. They had a relationship with God that was based on their own works rather than on the life God wanted to freely give them. Listen to, you say, well, how do you know that, Nelson? Well, listen to the words of the older son in verse 29. He says, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. 
Listen to me. Please hear me. Keeping the commandments will not get you into heaven. Only Jesus Christ can open that door. And it takes a relationship with him. The Pharisees and the scribes all of a sudden are trapped. There's nowhere to go. Jesus has exposed them. And yet he offers them the same thing he's offering the tax collectors and the sinners, which they gladly receive. Listen to what he says. He offers them redemption by grace through faith. Listen to what he says. The Father says in, in, in chapter 15, verse 31. Son, you have always been with me. And everything I have, all that is mine, is yours. Now, Jesus tells these three stories so that we will understand how important one is for us. I'm going to apply this and we're going to be done. Jesus does these three stories to, compare, to clearly communicate the priority of one. And by that one, I mean whomever God is dealing with at that moment. He deals with both groups here. Neither is better off or worse off than others. You say, well, yeah, but the Pharisees, they knew more. They knew more, but they didn't get it. So which is better, to know nothing and not get it, or to know a lot and not get it? If you know a lot and don't get it, that's called the spirit of stupidity. All right? I mean, it is. The other is the spirit of ignorance. They don't, they, they, they're just literally stupid. They've got everything they need. They've got it laid out. They know what the Messiah's going to look like. They've got all the verses. They know all the verses. They just don't know him when he steps in front of them. Listen, the priority of one, how does that affect us? Well, the priority of God for your life is the one he places in your pathway. You and I are not responsible for the thousands. We're just responsible for the next one. It doesn't change. Every day, it's the next one. You say, but what about the... I've shared the gospel 15 times with 15 different people and nothing's happened. You don't know that. You don't know that. You realize it takes, on average, 15 times for a person to hear the gospel to really hear it from somebody else, not in a sermon, but from somebody sharing with them before they come to Christ. You may have been number 14. Or you may have been number 1. Or every once in a while you get to be number 15. But if you and I will be faithful to the ones He puts in our path, He will be faithful to take care of the rest. Listen, until the one in our pathway, like it was in Jesus' pathway, becomes as much a priority to us as he or she is to God, we don't really understand and we don't grasp what Jesus has done for us. That salvation that I received, it wasn't meant to just rest here. It's not fire insurance. Okay, I know some of you cringe when I say this. I just don't know how to communicate it any better. It's not to just protect this old building from the fire. It's to give me life. And when I get life, it makes me strong enough then to give that life away. It came to me on its way to somebody else. That's what God intended for us to be conduits. 
not, not holes in the dirt that just collect and collect and collect. Now, the Bible calls those cisterns. I don't know if you've ever drank water out of a cistern. But it's not nearly as good as it is out of flowing water. Okay. By the way, the biggest cistern in the world is the Sea of Galilee. I mean, the, uh, I'm wrong. The, the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is alive. You, flow, you, you drive down the Sea of Galilee and wherever they take that water and put it on the ground, that ground blooms. But by the time it gets to the Dead Sea, there ain't nothing there but salt. Because there's no outlet. All those minerals, all those things, all that mud, all that dirt has settled there and it, nothing can live in it. Listen, a lot of us are like the, sea, uh, the, the Dead Sea rather than the, 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 the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. Nothing's, we've, we've inhaled a whole lot of stuff. We've just not exhaled any of it to anybody. There's a lot of stories going on in my mind right now. I can't tell any of them, so I'm moving on right there with that one. But listen, until there's one, that one in our pathway becomes a priority, we don't really know who God is. Jesus didn't save you or me to be good. Listen to me. Please. This will set you free. He didn't save us to be good. He saved us to do good to the one He places in our path. Being good and doing good are two different things. When Jesus died for us and we accepted Him, we, we, we surrendered to Him, He gave us His goodness. His righteousness. And in God's eyes, we became good. Okay? Y'all tracking with me? There's nothing I can add to it. Nothing I can take away from it. And because I carry His righteousness, I can do righteous acts that will please Him. And those righteous acts are to be good to those around us so that they see Jesus in us. Scripture says, how are they going to know your mind? It's going to be by your love. By your willingness to show them your love, not tell them. Jesus was faithful to everyone that God placed in His pathway. He was never too busy. He was never too rushed to meet that person's need. Now listen to me. He's got three and a half years to get it done. How many of you are stressed out because of the season we've gone through? How many of you got all your Christmas decorations up? No, I want to know if they got them up because if they have, we need help getting ours up, okay? They're still down. Most of them are. And, and next week we're looking at, oh, I got to get this and this and this and I got to do this and this and I got to be there and there. And we're stressed out. Jesus never got stressed out about what he had to do because the next person in his pathway was a part of what he had to do. And listen, it wasn't convenient. He was on his way places and somebody grabbed hold of him or fling themselves out in front of him or come and say, Jesus, Jesus, my son is dying. Come to my house. What do you do? I'm sorry, I got other things I got to do today. No, he never did that. Why? Because the next one in front of him was what was important. Whomever God put in his pathway. See, Jesus didn't say whatever I see the Father doing and whatever I hear him saying. Those weren't just nice things to say. He really meant that. 
It wasn't convenient. It wasn't always easy. How many of you have been ever been dead tired? I mean, literally could not keep your eyes open, could not think. You were so tired, so worn out, so exhausted, not from just a hard day, but from a month of hard days. That's where Jesus was every day. It was overwhelming. There were some times when he just literally had to say, come on guys, we're going in the woods for a while. So every day was that way for him. It wasn't wasn't easy. And you know what? It wasn't practical. But not always practical. There were other things he could have done, it seems to us, that would have been more practical. But it wasn't practical, but it was what God called him to do. And I, I don't know if you realize this, but the main reason and the task that we're still here for is not to make money. It's not even to gain prestige and power. It's not even to raise children. It's to share with the one that God puts in front of us. Now, all of that other stuff's important. Okay, I love my, my kids, my daughter, and I love my grandkids. But God hadn't left me here just for them. He's left me here from whomever He places in my pathway. And our primary reason and task for being here is to share the truth about Jesus to the one that God brings to us. I challenge you to pay attention to the people God puts in your path. Because He will put them there. You may not notice them if you don't pay attention, but pay attention to them. It's God's priority for us then to share with them. You say, well, that's what I share with them. Share what Jesus has done for you. Just, just tell them what's happened to you. So, but I don't know this, and I don't know. Use your weaknesses, okay? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, maybe you don't know all the passages. Don't worry about it. Just share what you do know. I, I get asked all the time, Pastor, where's this verse at? I don't know. I can't keep up with verses and, 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 and chapters, okay? I've never been good with numbers, but I know a lot of verses, but if I have to look them up, here's how I have to look them up. Or, here's a secret most pastors would never tell you about. In the back of their Bible, there's an index. If you buy a really good Bible, it's a big index. I can't tell you how many Sunday mornings I've sat over here and God says, I got this verse for you. You need to share this with the people. And I can't, I don't have a clue where, I know it's in the New Testament or the Old Testament, but I don't know which book. And I don't have 30 minutes to run a bunch of them down. So I just go, God, show it to me in the index. I know you'll look at me a little differently after this, but it's just reality, okay? It's one of my weaknesses. I can't, I can't there's a handful of verses, and I mean literally on my fingers, that I can tell you the chapter and the verse. But those are not just, the, those are not the only five I know. I just don't know where the other ones are at. I know they're in here. You say, how do you know that, Nelson? Because this is where I got them. Okay, and if I have to, I can find them. I have tools that will help me. There are tools that will help you do wherever you need. But we have to be willing to share it. We have to be willing to go after them. Our priority has got to be one. Listen, if you and I really want to be like Jesus, 
and we really want to do the things Jesus did, it begins with a priority adjustment. Okay, all of you know what an attitude adjustment is, don't you? No different. It's the same thing as a priority. We just have to adjust our priorities. What I want stops being the most important thing in my life. And what God wants begins to be my priority. And God's interested in one. One at a time. I probably told you this. I'm going to tell it again because God reminds me of this over and over and over. It's been probably close to 20 years ago. I was in my office, in a little office, about six or eight foot wide, about six or eight foot long, okay? I had books stacked everywhere. The walls were caving in on me. And I'm just, I'm having a pity party. God, you forgot about me. God, I, you know, I didn't, I've I, I done, I, you know, I, 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 he goes, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I said, God, I, I'm not getting to preach. I'm not getting to teach. I, I'm not getting to do what you call me to do. I, I just sit across from a desk and I listen to people gripe and complain. And they want an answer. I'm wore out from this. What, what is the deal? And I heard God say this. I've heard God say a couple of things in my life. But I'm, I've probably not heard but one other thing more clearly. And that was, Nelson, if you'll take care of the ones and the twos I send you, I'll take care of the thousands. What do you say? It's like getting a backhand. Any of y'all know what a backhand is? It makes you pay attention when you got one. I know parents don't do that anymore. I understand that. It wakes you up. Now, I believe God did it out of love. But I, meant, I believe He meant what He said. Listen, if you'll take care of the ones and the twos, I'll take care of the thousands. So I've had to learn to pay attention to the ones and the twos because my natural tendency is to pay attention to the crowd. Because you get lots of adulation from the crowd. But the crowd's not that important to Jesus. It's the ones and the twos in the crowd. By the way, ones and twos make up that crowd. And so I've had to learn to focus. And focus and look and look. And I don't do a very good job of it. I still don't do a good job of it. But here's how God encourages me. It's usually from something a one tells me. You won't remember this, but. Listen, I'm not seeing thousands and thousands come to Jesus. Okay? I'm not pastoring some megachurch. I, I don't care about that stuff. I care about ones and twos. You know why? Because it was about eight or ten years later after I'd learned that lesson the hard way, that God took me out of that little office and began to put me in places where I could speak to larger crowds. But as I had to stay faithful to the ones and the twos. Because whenever I drifted off toward the big numbers, God brought me back with a gentle tap on my back and said, ones and twos, ones and twos. I'm telling you this, folks, because if we will pay attention to ones and twos, this church will grow. This community 
will be changed. This area around us, this region, will be changed. This nation will be changed. But if we keep doing it the way we've been doing it, which is like shooting a shotgun and hoping, nothing's going to change. Because I'm not being faithful to what God's called me to. Yeah, but Nelson, if we don't pray for revival and there's not a movement of God and da-da-da-da-da, I've heard that all my life. Here's how I see change take place. One-on-one. -on -one. It's that person right there. I've seen that person change. You know what? That person changes another person. How many of you have ever heard the name Mordecai Ham? Most people don't know who that is. Mordecai Ham led G Billy Graham to Jesus. One man, very few people know. He led Billy Graham to Jesus. Billy Graham led thousands and thousands to Jesus. But without Mordecai Ham, there's no Billy Graham. There are Billy Grahams out there. Some of them are drug addicts right now. There are Mother Teresa's out there. Some of them are involved in human trafficking right now. There are evangelists, and I can't right now, I'm not being able to think of them, but you know what? They're trapped in a village in, in Mexico somewhere. They had not heard the gospel yet. There's all kinds of people that God's waiting to use that he's given us responsible with to be faithful to. And so God has placed these precious and, 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 and valuable gifts along our pathway. In other words, he's strong them along the pathway so that we could, we could stop and spend a few moments with them instead of rush. Most of us are in such a dadgum hurry. We're going to get to heaven and not be familiar with it. It's not going to look like we think it's going to look because we haven't spent any time learning who God is and what God wants and the people that God's put in our pathway. Listen, stop rushing and pay attention to the people that God puts in your pathway. If you have a desire to ignore somebody that's over there, that's probably who God's calling you to. I tell this story, I'm going to stop, okay? Every time I go to the courthouse... I just got a few minutes, okay? Most of my time's been spent trying to find a parking meter that works. I got just enough time to get in, get out. I don't go very often, but it never fails on my way out that somebody, hey, buddy, you got so-and-so? Can you help me? Now, I don't give people money, okay? And I'm not telling you to. I say, hey, you like a cup of coffee? Yeah, man, I love a cup of coffee. I'll buy them a cup of coffee. But that's not convenient. All right? Because you've got to walk two or three blocks. But I've learned that God put that person in my pathway to slow me down and show me what's important. It really doesn't matter if I get back to my office five minutes earlier and then spend two hours piddling around doing nothing when I think I'm doing something as it does buying that person a cup of coffee and just telling them that Jesus loves them. Which is more important? <laughs> Same thing happens at the store. Every time I get in the line, I shut it down. 
I've just learned. If you see me ahead of you, you need to go on to another line. But I'm, I'm learning that there's a reason God wants me to talk to that young lady or that, this middle-aged or older lady or, or man. There's something that he wants me to see or hear, I, especially at Walmart. Yes. But God, it's not convenient. It's never convenient. It was not convenient for Jesus to find you or to find me, but he did. If it was about convenience, we'd all be on the the bus to hell singing Kumbaya, okay? But it wasn't convenient. It wasn't easy. It wasn't even practical. It was costly. And so today, I really believe God's saying to us, He's saying this to me as an individual. I believe he's saying it to all of us as individuals. I believe he's saying it to us as a body. Open your eyes. Open your heart. Don't just open your eyes. Open your heart. Yeah, but if I open my heart, I'll do something stupid. No, you'll do something that God wants to do. It may be stupid to other people. Open your eyes. Open your heart. And share what you claim to believe with the one that I position in your pathway today. Yeah, but what about so-and-so? Are they in your pathway today? No. Focus on this one. If you'll focus on this one, God will get you to that one. Yeah, but what about my Uncle Joe or my Aunt Mary or, or my Brother Bill or whomever, my neighbor next door? Just focus on the one that God puts in your pathway today. He'll get you to the fence. He'll get you over to your uncle's house, your aunt's house, your mama's house, your brother's house. Don't worry about them. Just trust God. There He is. He'll take care of them. You focus on the one. You make the one a priority, and God will do the rest. For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eagles Wing Church. Thanks for listening, and have a blessed week.